Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show. With me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, joined by my co-host, as ever, the dutiful Alan Ben-Joseph, all the way in Amsterdam. How are you doing today, Alan? I'm doing well. How are you, Rob? How's your week so far? So far, so good. It's been a little bit of a quieter week for me so far, which is nice. There's been a lot of travelling in the rearview mirror but that's done for now and i have a couple of weeks at home before i have to unfortunately go on a skiing holiday fortunately unfortunately is it just family and friends or is there also a bit of watch biz it's just my girlfriend and i she's an avid skier she has been since she was three years old and i am a complete neophyte i went skiing for the first time last year didn't make a complete fool of myself, but didn't really cover myself in glory, as it were. So I'm going again this time. I'm going to take some more lessons, going to try and get up to speed, and I'm going to take my pack raft with me so I can go kayaking maybe on one or two days, because I don't think I need six days of downhill constantly. I like cross-country skiing, so I might do a little bit of that, and I will definitely be taking some of my watchers with me and putting them through their paces in that environment, because it's only polite, right? Definitely, and fun. It is fun. It is fun. And one thing that's really nice about holidays is not worrying too much about what day or date it is. And that segues beautifully into, I went a bit Alan Partridge there suddenly, segues beautifully into our first question from Richard Swords. It is Richard Swords and not Richard from Swords, I think. Hi, Richard, by the way. Thanks for getting in touch. Oh, Richard got in touch via the contact form on the website. And that is quite rare. Nearly everything comes into us in our direct message inboxes on Instagram or LinkedIn or emails, but the contact form is severely underused. So if you want to ask us a question, don't be shy. You can go stick it into the contact form, which you can find at www.therealtime.show and follow the contact tab on the menu. All right, Richard asks, my question is regarding the color of date wheels. I see some are matched to the dial, and many are white. I have a silver-dialed IWC Portuguesa with a white wheel. I didn't notice when I bought the watch, and, to be honest, it does bug me. I thought this was just laziness on the part of the manufacturer, but I have noticed other watches with white wheels on silver dials. Is this always a conscious decision of the manufacturer, or are there other factors involved, such as cost, etc., etc.? I have an answer myself, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this one first, Alon. And maybe you could also give us a little bit of backstory about the conversations you have with people coming into your store, looking at these watches, and perhaps going through the same processes mentally that Richard is expressing here. First of all, Richard, thank you so much. And bonus points to you for using the contact form. That was super cool. It's actually a very good and legitimate question because it annoys the F out of me. So I feel you, I hear you, and I agree with you. Unfortunately, it's not laziness on the behalf of watchmakers because the majority of watchmakers buy the date wheels, the discs, from an external partner, almost everyone. They're not so much off the shelf, but it's too expensive for them to create a matching date disc wheel to match the main dial color. So that's the biggest reason. Now, if a watchmaker does match it, they score bonus points. So kudos to them. And then for me, if they literally create a new font, then they really hit a home run. 
So on that topic, um, let's discuss the new Omega Speedmaster Super Racing. Oh, that's good. That's going to be a lovely conversation. But before we get to that, <laughs> here comes the cavalry of good sense. Okay, hang on a second. I'm jumping in here. Oh, you can't wait for this. IWC Portuguesa. You're telling me it's too expensive for IWC to pay for a silver date wheel with black print with a customized font and wrap it up in a nice big box and have it hand-delivered to your house. I call bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Now, the cost is a factor. Richard is right. You are also correct, Alan. Of course, the cost is a factor at certain price points. But surely, the answer has to be that there is a conscious design decision to leave black on white date wheels, even though it jars so horrendously, in my opinion, and in yours, I know, in these cases, because it is the highest form of legibility you can get in that space, right? So legibility's got to be the thing, right? Okay. So I'm wearing right now the Ace Cedric Bellon collab that we launched a week and a half ago, okay? Nice. We had endless discussions about a mil-spec pilot-inspired wristwatch with a black dial, white loom. I instantaneously wanted a black date disc. Cedric Bellon being the amazing designer he is and designing pilot watches for over two decades, said what you just said. He says, aesthetically, I don't let's go for white, not because of cost. Um, because we mixed indices in white with Arabic numerals, and we went for white for pure aesthetic reasons. But to re to 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 discuss your argument, when you're a pilot, you don't need to have a readability on a date. It's all about time, isn't it? So, and regarding IWC, yeah, of course you're right, Rob, but. What is more important to financial holdings? Profits. So they make more profit on it. Yeah, that's that's fair. So <laughs> maybe the reason is cost because they're money-grabbing maniacs, not just IWC. That's harsh to say, to paint them as different from anyone else. No different from any other big brand. That's fine. But they also have a justification of legibility. Now, you're right that because uh, there's two very distinct things there. Legibility and aesthetics aren't the same. So if you want to balance a dial design that maybe has white indices at, let's say, for the sake of argument, 3, 12, and 9, and you have a date window at 6 on a black dial, if you cut off the bottom 6 index and put a black date wheel in there with white print, then that's going to make the dial look quite top heavy. So you can actually use the white background of a bog standard date wheel to balance the dial visually. That's aesthetics, right? The difference is legibility. I like white on black date wheels. I think they're legible enough. Because as you said, quite rightly, if you're a pilot or if you're actually using the watch in the moment, you very rarely need to tell what date it is in a split second. But you can't deny, nobody can deny, unfortunately, that black and white date wheels are just the most legible. Doesn't excuse the fact that there's so many of them, in my opinion. And I am totally down with Richard that a black on silver date wheel in a silver dialed watch would be far, far preferable. I would absolutely love it. I would go for that kind of thing myself and I would really appreciate it. And I'd talk about it till the end of days. Like you wear your Tudor Pelagos LHD all the time and that's got like that off 
white date wheel. And better still than that, the dates alternate between black and red in color, right? Yes. And now you score bonus points. That's the real hardcore watch nerds that know that it's a roulette dial. Now, while you've been talking, I've went to the IDBC website because I haven't looked in quite some time at the 5,000 caliber I'd, uh, IWC Portuguese Automatics, so the seven days. And what I found super weird, so they recently launched a dark blue, petrol blue dial, which has the white date disc. But then later on, the most recent one is an ox blood red or call it Bordeaux. And strange enough, that date disc is ton su ton, so tonal, color and color. So I have no idea what IDMC is doing, actually. And Christian Knoop is an amazing designer, also a Dutchman. But I don't know why they did it. The black one nowadays has a black day disc as well. Okay? It's on the tool watch. So on the pilot watches, I think they do the contrast. So it concurs what you said about readability. Um, so, yeah. Um, either their sub-dial manufacturer didn't have the capacity to make the blue Date discs, and I'm I'm referring at reference I W five O O seven one O. On that point, you do actually open up an interesting line of questioning here to try and get to the bottom of this problem. And maybe it isn't so much an issue of cost uh, directly. You know, white on blue print isn't hugely more expensive than blue on white or black on white. But maybe it is a QC failure issue. You just reminded me of my time at Nomos uh, working on the. Veltzeit Nackblau, the, the night blue, the midnight blue world timer that had four separate blue dials, which were all galvanically coated. And the galvanic treatment process, while very high end and certainly not cheap, is weirdly inconsistent. And finding multiple models or multiple components that matched well enough to be used in the same watch was a horrendous strain on the production line and caused that watch to be perennially delayed and sold out and so on and so forth. So maybe they're concerned if they take a non-standard color like a midnight blue that is a proprietary shade for their watch, for example, and they try and have a date wheel printed with that same blue or that same paint, it might actually jar more than a white date wheel and certainly if a dial is finished with like a sunburst pattern for example and you put like a blue that is a matte version of that sunburst in there with white print is it actually going to look more disruptive now in those instances in those cases especially with altered dial finishes like a sunburst or like a checkerboard or whatever what i would personally do is use a white date field and then print the number itself in the color that the dial is using so i wouldn't just go black on white in in a blue case for example i'd go blue on white or in a gray case i'd go gray on white just so that there is that direct link there is that homogeny you can claim to have thought about it and the original font would certainly help that as well but you also can utilize the stock white wheels where they are available without having to worry about qc failures or extra r&d costs for example and actually interesting where we took this you see two no more than one and together we uh, find solutions but also no problems um richard i hope this answered your question yeah i get i guess i guess the best way to look at it from richard's perspective is richard you're not crazy yeah what you're seeing is annoying for a lot of people us included we're on the same side as you there are reasons which 
I personally may not deem good enough or may not deem them the correct course of action to have taken by brands, but there are reasons at least, and they're either cost, supply, QC, or just general aesthetics and legibility. So there's a bunch of stuff going on, but you know, my advice would be keep an eye open for the perfect dial balance that has a date window in a place that appeals to you visually and also uses colors in a way that you think is sympathetic to the whole overall design without sacrificing its readability and have fun collecting watches. That's it. Well said, Rob. I couldn't have said it better. Going from Richard, we received a question from James in Harrow. He emailed me. He's actually very near Bremont in Henley on Thames. Uh, Bremont had actually very exciting news a few weeks ago. They announced that it had a new capital injection, and therefore the company is valued at 100 million. So James writes Bremont worth more than 100 million. Is this finally the recognition they deserve? Rob, you work there. So the honor is yours. Well, I believe that the um, the news was around this new investment that they'd received from a private investor. I find that investment quite shocking, to be honest, not because Bremont doesn't deserve it, but just because that's a huge amount of capital to stump up for a private individual. And apparently, he just saw the watches and said, whoa, I like those. You know, they're nice. I want to see what these guys are doing. And I know for a fact that there are plenty of people in the world with a huge amount of money that do just want to be patrons of endeavors in which they believe. And I have experienced it myself recently with somebody wishing to put a huge amount of money in in my eyes into one of the projects in which I'm involved with barely any cajoling whatsoever. And that kind of cash made my eyes roll back in my head. Truth of the matter is, yeah, weird as it is, some guys do just have that kind of cash rolling around the place and they're happy to put it somewhere. And there is obviously going to be some eyebrows raised as to whether that cash has come from a good place and whether it um, should be put into a business like Bremont. But I personally say more power to the English brothers if they have got this kind of backing from someone that believes in them, then they should take it and run with it and do as much as they possibly can with it looking forward now i'm sure that it was also a decent payday for for them both so congrats for that as well and um is it just yeah i mean bremont has been what bremont is very consistently since bremont ever was and the company is i suppose not too far off its 20th anniversary i suppose more like 15 ish years now But they have established themselves as one of the most visible and exciting presences in the British landscape. They do a great deal for drawing attention to British watchmaking, although they occupy a very different sphere and have very different goals from, say, uh, an independent avant-garde designer like Giles down in Schofield or an absolute all-time great watchmaking master like Roger Smith on the Isle of Man. They do different things. You know, Bremont is closest in my opinion to rolex in terms of the way it approaches its business operations it is possibly the best modern marketing brand in the industry and has gone from a standing start to this exceptional international presence in uh, a blink of an eye in terms of watch industry years so do they deserve it look the guys have always pushed they've always tried to 
innovate within their sphere. And by that, I do mean with marketing activations and ambassadorships and, and partnerships and special editions here, there and everywhere. And they have taken some great routes by implementing, uh, by by integrating true artifacts of British culture, like wood from the uh, cabins at Bletchley Park and uh, metal from HMS Victory and and uh, muslin fabric from the wing of the Wright Brothers Kitty Hawk Flyer, <laughs> whatever it's called. It's been a long time since I worked there. It's been oh, God, eight years now. Um, but they have done wonderfully well in that regards. It's thrilling to see private individuals investing so much of their wealth in the industry I support and advocate and will continue to support and advocate for the rest of my days. So yeah, good on them. Let's hope they do great things with it. And I can't wait to see what the combination of the ENG 300 calibers arrival in the catalog and this kind of investment will have on their future output. Bill Ackman is an American billionaire. He's worth about $2 billion. He actually invested personally $48.8 million sterling, so pounds. So I guess he obtained half of the company, and that's why they're talking about a valuation of a million, but it doesn't matter. I'm super happy for the English brothers and the whole team of Bremont because I do definitely think they deserve it. And how cool is it that such a billionaire who literally, as you said, Rob, shopped at Bremont in London, bought some watches, loved it, reached out to them, and then invested because does he need it? No. Does he do a lot of tech? Yeah, he's originally a fund manager, so he invests in everything. But I'm quite confident he didn't do this for a quick money grab or a 10x. Um, And I think it's very welcome for Bremont because they're investing so much in bringing as much as possible production onto the UK shores, as they mentioned it themselves. And they literally started now doing their calibers besides already bringing their case making to Silverstone. Um, So I think it's super cool. And it's also cool to see that there is still so much interest into watchmaking and more money is flowing into the art of making wristwatches because my role model, Michael Jordan, invested in Watchbox, which is a retailer, but now a watchmaker because they own Debatune, for example. So I find it very interesting, actually. Rob, do you want to pick the next one from the mailbag? Yeah, all right. I got one via IG from Jack Williams. Short and sweet, popular topic. One we've sort of touched on before, but always good revisiting because, of course, time is running and our opinions are always developing and changing. Jack says, Collabs, did we have enough or do you like them and want to see more? Question mark. And once we've addressed this, we'll go back and talk about that Omega Speedmaster racing, huh? Oh, yeah. We need to talk about that Speedmaster. Definitely. Collabs, did we have enough? Well... Guys, I'm guilty of it, so I cannot say yes, because up until now, we made seven. I've already four more with Ace Jewelers in the pipeline confirmed for 2023. And it's not a secret that Rob and I are working on concepts for the real-time show call-ups. So I don't think so. Um, And as long as they add value, why 
not. I mean, we had this vivid discussion with George Bamford, right? The king of collabs. Um, he started with customizations. He's been on the show. Highly recommend that episode. Besides that, he's a lovely chap. It's actually very cool how he came up in the watch industry and what he's actually doing today. And, and my stance is as long as you add value and create new designs and new stuff, then I'm all for it. It's that simple. You, Rob? Oh, I'm big time for it. Absolutely, 100%. I love it. I think that the problem with limited editions is not the limited editions themselves, or special editions, shall we say. Oh, no, actually, let's say limited editions specifically, because that's where the issue lies. It's the fact that people can't get these watches, or they are not communicated in the right way. Their availability is not transparent enough. And this idea of cultivating FOMO, creates a very icky feeling around what is a beautiful hobby of collecting fine wristwatches. So that's my issue with the whole limited edition question, the collab question. I don't think you can have too many. Like you always say, Alon, like if it adds value, if it's fun, if it excites somebody, if it pulls in a new audience, if it draws attention towards the industry from corners of the world, that have never been paying attention to it before, then that's a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, we are thinking about doing some collabs with our friends and partners of some that have been on the show and some that are yet to feature, but will do soon, but also with a slightly different twist. You know, we want to, we want to focus on giving something back to the watchmaking industry. And yeah, of course we love designing watches with brands and our friends at the top of those brands. But what we really want to do is make a positive impact. And having been a watchmaker myself and having gone through the apprenticeship system and endured some of the hardships that come with that phase of one's career, I have a few ideas of how we might be able to make a positive change in that regard via collaborations with the brands that we love and respect so much so watch this space on that regard there'll i hope be a great many things to choose from but focused on a great many different positive endeavors rather than just buying us both lamborghinis i don't want a lamborghini can't park it anywhere too low have you noticed that i actually have um and i don't want one either give me more watches more 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 watches I think I've got enough watches. I might start auctioning my own private collection at some point just to try and free up some space in my watch box and my head and my heart and enable me to go out into the world and try something new and feel like my efforts were worthwhile. I wonder why I don't believe you, Rob. I don't. I I think you should stop this utter nonsense. And interesting. I wonder if it is nonsense. I'm not sure. I believe myself. (laughs) Yeah. No. 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 Don't put rubbish on air, please. Let's continue. Next question. We we need to talk a lot and a lot about the new Speedmaster, dude. Come on. So let me let me bridge it. Okay. I I mentioned it in the initial question. Who's Bridget? Richard, <laughs> is that actually a word to Bridget? Well, I mean, or did I just make up a verb? I don't think anyone called Bridget would be too pleased to know that they'd been turned into a verb because to Bridget could have some pretty sordid uh, hashtag sex pile uh, red bar <laughs> <laughs> implications. But yeah, okay. If you want to know what that means, listen to the previous Q and A. I got excited. I, I I had loads of emotions when Omega dropped there. New caliber, the new Spirate TM trademarked system. They uh, said they do zero to plus two seconds 
the design is all over the place. Uh, honeycomb sandwich dials. There is a tribute to the, I call it, I nicknamed it the Bumblebee. So the Aquaterra, the first one that had the new coaxial caliber that was amagnetic, so that could withstand up to 15,000 gauss, that had a second's hand that was black-yellow, alternating black and yellow. So that's why we called it a nickname. I actually owned that watch and let it go. So it's all over the place. Design-wise, I don't know if I'm in love, but I got excited about one little detail. The font on the date disc was different. I'm like, hey, cool. Finally, a different font on date discs. So I'm jumping back to you, Richard. But when I started reading the press release, I found it less cool because it was only the number 10 as it is the 10th anniversary of that A-Magnetic Caliber Omega invented and made. Of the 31 numbers on that disc, only one has a different font, apparently. I haven't seen it in the flesh yet. Um, But, okay, Rob, watchmaker, please talk to me. Is it really that spectacular? And and what the heck is Spirit system? Well, yes and no, I guess, is the answer. Um, On the one hand, the accuracy claims made by Omega to be able to get this watch operating between naught and plus two seconds a day are totally believable because it's totally achievable with even a a basic caliber if you have a good enough watchmaker. What this really means is it's a godsend to the watchmaking team at Omega because this spring system is supposed to come straight off the production line looking um, box fresh, perfect, and running without the need for any human intervention whatsoever to achieve those kind of... Uh, rate readings the micro adjuster on the balance cock itself is a thing of beauty it looks a million dollars and it looks suitably futuristic i am a huge fan of that design and it looks like a lot of fun to work on as a watchmaker because it'll just make you feel like god basically every time you approach one of these things it looks like it's going to be almost impossible to mess it up unless you actually shatter the silicon hairspring just possible but you know even then, you just replace it for a new one and jobs are good. And what do I think about the design? Uh, well, okay, I think it's a lot, but I think it's actually really cool in so many ways. Firstly, I'm a big fan of the Racing Speedmaster line because I believe it to be the legitimate successor of the original 1957 Speedmaster. I know the Moonwatch is what we know the Speedmaster collection for and it's integral to the Omega brand and that's totally fair and totally legitimate and Omega should do exactly what they're doing by banging that drum as often and as loudly as possible. But the Speedmaster was originally designed to be a motor racing chronograph, just like the Daytona. And so I love this updated version with the Comper layout. That's two subdials. Some people call it bicompacts, but bicompacts is generally three subdials on the uh, on the watch face, with one of them as the going seconds tied to the time and the other two attached to the chronograph. Um, I like this a lot. I think the honeycomb design is cool and yeah, it's maybe a bit much, but the yellow and black does give like a nice bumblebee vibe to the whole thing and isn't a Mancunian um, when it suits me that uh, appeals and the dashed like hazard seconds hand at nine o'clock is just really really awesome and the kind of detail that would keep me looking at a watch day in day out I love the fact that the loom 
is yellow and glows accordingly. I think that that faded seconds hand, I don't know if you noticed this, but the seconds hand fades from black to yellow. That's one of the best things I've ever seen in watch design. And to see that from a major brand like Omega is absolutely thrilling because it just sort of shows the gloves are off and they might even try something new. To answer your question directly regarding the Spirate, which is a trademarked component now this looks to be a i would assume dry cut silicon component dry stands for deep reactive ion etching and that's when you basically take a sheet of si14 silicon and project an image onto it using light and then coat this si14 with a chemical that is light reactive and then etches away the remaining material and leaves you with just this r- ridiculous component i think it's how frederick constant uses the monolithic oscillators that we mentioned right at the end of the last q and a episode this spring is really cool to look at it has a cool little omega logo in there and this previously unattainable shape which has been etched into it yeah and in conjunction with the ci14 wheel itself we can expect great accuracy but more than that because it isn't the accuracy itself that is so remarkable. It's the frequency with which we can expect these components to be that accurate that is quite stunning. And that hopefully that more and more people can enjoy chronometric performance on their wrists when they buy a watch from Omega going forward. So ultimately, I'm a fan. I love the gradient hand of the seconds for the chronograph indeed and did you see what they did with the nato strap they also put that effect in it i did get a bit of a a gz sneaker effect on that that fabric and gz is passé yeah yeah the nato (laughs) strap actually that's that's the one bit that i'm really I'm, i'm not so much for and i like a nato strap but that that jagged yellow line down the middle almost looks a bit uh, I don't know, like mm, not quite well enough executed to match up with the watch head, which because of its sapphire and its ceramic and, and let's not forget, like we spoke recently, a couple of episodes, I think maybe the Rolex review, we talked about Omega's incredible abilities when it comes to ceramic. This yellow or black is super, super cool. Yeah, so very interesting. So congratulations, Omega, and they're really, really pushing the envelope on innovation and that I do appreciate and love. So can't wait to strap one on my wrist to see and test it i will still stick to the hand wound speedmasters because 42 works better for me than 44 and a quarter but super cool and i've been told that the spirit system will be rolled out to other calibers as well so it's not a uh, prototype or a one-off attempt that's awesome to hear and just in case we didn't mention it, I don't remember us saying you might have done Alon, but that question came in from Neil Powell. So thanks for that, Neil. Cheers. Yeah, I didn't mention that. So thank you so much, Neil. It's um, we we received several questions on this watch, so um, we picked uh, the few. And 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 again, thank you to all our listeners. Um, we really really appreciate you guys. Keep on sending in questions. Um, going from Neil, I think we need to answer the last. Question from Wouter. We did the first three of the four, and we have to both mention what we think are the best designs of the recent years. So let's call it the 20s because we did the 90s, noughties, 10s. So here goes. Rob, I'm super curious 
what do you think is the best design of the last three years or two actually so are we gonna do like a like no holds barred upper no upper limit piece and also a smaller piece like we did for the yeah fine or just mention all the watches you like that have been released the last two years Oh well, that's a long list. That's a really long list. But, but the number one, the number one is actually quite easy for me. I mean, obviously, this is the most recent memory, and it just sneaks into the twenties, and that's the Chapek Antarctic. Obviously, everybody that knows anything about my writing history will know that I was one of the lucky first journalists to get their hands on an Antarctic, and I've been singing its praises ever since. And um, I've yeah had a lot to do with the brand and I've been a follower and a friend for many years and we did a special edition together for Fratello. Um, who knows what might come in the future? And uh, we had Xavier on the on the on the air in episode eight, which is I think our third most listened to episode ever after the first two, which are just up there because they're older, I guess. So go check that out if you've not listened to it already because he's a fascinating character and one of the nicest people you could hope to meet in the watch industry. So for me, it's the Chapek Antarctic at number one. You tell me your big dog and then I'll tell you what affordable watch I would also mention honorably for the 20s so far. Xavier, I know you are listening to our episode, so you see how much he loves you, but you already knew that. And for our listeners, he really, really loves Chapek, Rob. This is, we're not getting paid by Chapek. He's really objective. There are no ties there. And I, 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 I can only support this passion. I love the brand as well, but Rob, Rob is really a grand ambassador. Um, I, and, and I'm, I'm not, objective here at all but i kind of am i have to give a shout out to cedric bellon i've mentioned his name uh i have said that we did a collab with him with ace juniors but the truth of the matter is i'm such a fan of his work that i reached out to him i really really wanted to work with him so cedric bellon um and and and, and i've interviewed him and and his interview will air soon um, we, we just have a huge backlog and we're very fortunate and blessed that we get so much support from the watch industry. We simply can't process it because we don't want to make your podcast player overload. He's been working behind the scenes. He calls himself a ghostwriter, which I don't think does his, him justice, for more than a dozen amazing watch brands. Some he can't speak about, which I do know who. He works with, I know exactly what watch he designed, but he's worked for Longines, Frédéric Constant, Hermès, Bell & Ross from almost day one. Um, and our mutual friend, Gino Benedini from Watch Angels, who will also come on the show, he literally twisted his arm to create a watch on this crowd-funded platform, which is called Watch Angels. And I've never heard of Cedric before that watch was launched and a project on that platform. And I immediately fell in love with A, the design. So the visual design, the design philosophy behind it, the quality that he wants as a minimum, but more importantly is because he really, really is an advocate of sustainability. And that made a golden trifecta for me. So I immediately bought his first watch ever, which is the CB01 
on the Watch Angels platform. I became a Watch Angels because of him. And I've been following him ever since. I had the honor to meet him on several occasions. We actually became friends. He launched his second watch, the CB01 GMT. And then it clicked in my mind that that watch is beautiful, but would be more amazing if we made it more of a pilot's watch. Since he didn't use Arabic numerals on his initial design, I pitched it to him. And luckily to me, he said yes. So then we really started working together. And now we are, we did some deep dives to see if we can create something totally new from scratch together. So very exciting. So I have to give a shout out to him as something that's really new in the twenties. But this is your affordable pick, right? This is the, this is not your like all decades, all like singing and dancing top of the tree. No, 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 no. This is, this is something that comes to mind that's new and is really conceived in the twenties because his price points are below 2000. Maybe if he goes and makes chronographs or whatever, he will never become a hotel luxury brand. That's on his ambition or a manufacturer for that matter. So yes, this is the affordable one. For the hotel luxury pick, I love the Antarctic very much. Not as much as you do, although that Osmosium dial is, is spectacular. I do love integrated bracelet watches and Chapek won the prize together with H. Moser and C with the Streamliner. I love that bracelet. I love the case design. I like the minimalism of how they reduce the functionality to less is more. So I'll, I'll go for that one as a nemesis for your Antarctic. So I'm curious what you picked for the more mainstream pick room. Yeah, that is a good choice. Uh, it comes from one of my favorites, of course, and it's one of the most worn watches in my collection in the last few years. Uh, well, certainly since the turn of the 2020s, and that would be the Fortis M40 Marine Master. That's the smaller of the two M40s with its very distinctive barrel-shaped tonneau-esque case. I've got it on a white rubber strap at the moment, but I'll soon be shifting it over to Fortis's block bracelet, which has a beautiful micro adjustment clasp so it's very comfortable and it's been a great hardware in watch and i've worn it on some adventures so it's very dear to my heart and that is one i think more people would fall in love with if they saw it on their wrist but i would also advise people to try the m44 which is 44 millimeters wide but because of its lugless design effectively it wears much much smaller and it really surprised me it changed my perspective on that watch because i thought that the m44 would just be way 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 too big for me but now i want one of those as well because it's a completely different wearing proposition so those are my two for the 20 so far we got the chepek antarctic you can choose your reference they're all amazing and i would advocate for the fortis m40 marine master the smaller of the two but also check out the m44 if you get chance all right, talking of something that's really picked up in the 20s, that's the trend of smartwatches. And we have a email, or you got an email from your friend Eduard Abura in Amsterdam. And he says, how is the trend of smartwatches like the Tag Heuer Connected going? Question mark. Are they going to replace the classic timepieces? So it's a very general one. You, Alon, are on the front line of this. You know what people's uh, reactions are when you show them a mechanical timepiece next to a smartwatch so maybe you could take this one away i'll leave you to it and give us your thoughts in detail please because it is a massive massive topic it 
definitely is. Um, it is a major trend, smartwatches. It has been for quite some time. Nobody expected that non-watchmakers would dominate in this segment, but unfortunately, they kind of missed the boat there. So, number one in the world is Apple. Both their watch, hardware, and software. And second in software is obviously Android, uh, Google. And the producer for hardware with Android is Samsung. That's no doubt, hands down, number one and two. They take the majority of the smartwatch pie. Then a runner-up is Garmin. And what they did is they created more of niche smartwatches. So they make specialties for particular sports. Think about sailing, uh, triathlon, running, golf, etc. Um, and then what happened? Then the watchmakers woke up. So the first to jump on the bandwagon was the Fossil Group with their own brand, Fossil. And they do a lot of licensed brands like Michael Kors, Emporio Armani, um, etc. So they started replacing the entry level of watchmaking by not using standard and low-priced quartz movements and made smartwatches. And here comes the difficulty for me. The high-end watchmakers and the first high-end watchmaker to jump on the bandwagon was Tag Heuer at the helm of the epic a legendary Jean-Claude Biver. Just listen to the first ever episode of the Real Time Show. And we actually discuss smartwatches in depth with him. So he, at the helm of Tag Heuer, I believe it was five, six years ago about, started making the Tag Heuer Carrera in a digital smartwatch version and used the hashtag connected to eternity very smartly thought of because the first generation and we're today at the third fourth generation of the Tagoria connected watch the first generation he immediately said hey digital devices have a very short lifespan so they become obsolete very quick but there is a need for it so the owners of the first generation Carrera connected watches could enter a trading program when they felt they're done with the watch and upgrade to a mechanical Tag Heuer watch. Second generation, he actually made the watch modular, so you could click out the digital module and buy a separate automatic module and convert your watch, but it wasn't really beautiful or sexy. Then Biver retired from LVMH. We know now today that he never actually retired and is working on his own brand, JC Biver, with his son, Pierre. And the owner of LVMH is uh, Mr. Arnaud. And one of his sons, Frédéric Arnaud, became the CEO of Tag Heuer. He loves tech. He actually run, ran the Tag Connected project from Paris. They actually have about 30 to 60 developers in Paris and Silicon Valley working on both the hardware end of the watch, but also creating skins and software apps for the Android 
OS, the operating system, and he took it to the golf segment of it by making the watch more unique. So they created a cool software platform for golfers. Not only do they make a golf watch, which is kind of a special edition, not so much limited, but special. And my dad is an avid golfer and he tested my brother's Tag Heuer connected watch. And he was actually impressed that their software for the golf sport is very good. And most recently, they even made it possible for people who don't own a Tag Heuer watch to use the software. So it's actually very interesting. So Tag Heuer is now morphing into becoming a software company as well. Um, what do we notice in the retail operation? Because, sorry, I'm deviating a bit. Um, the fad is gone a bit. The trend is gone. The novelty has worn off. It is known that the number one seller of mid-range, entry-level luxury mid-range watches in the world is Apple today. They don't publish figures, but almost everybody knows their value of sales in watches is more than the whole Swiss industry. And we've discussed this often on air and on this show. I think it's a good thing because a lot of people who don't wear watches start strapping on a connected device and that makes them used to wearing something. And in your evolution of wearing something on your wrist, um, most often you'll see those wearers switching up to a, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but we always say nice watch. So either a dress watch or a mechanical watch or a more valuable watch, could be quartz, um, because either they're fed up of charging the watch or they forget to charge their smartwatch or they go crazy from all the notifications and data that they're given. And then there's a third group that I've noticed is they want something more unique. I mean, if wearers of Rolex find it annoying when they go to a party or a bar or a pub and everybody has the same Rolex on the wrist, so you can't underline your own personality or style, Imagine if you have an Apple Watch on your on your wrist. I mean, everybody has the same one. Um, it is cool to see what Apple does. They're really pushing the envelope. And I think the Apple Ultra is cool. Like JCB Ver, my dad also buys almost every version that comes out, mostly due to health. So that's why he actually wears it. And he straps two watches on one hand. On his regular wrist is a mechanical watch. And then often he has the second one on, which is his Apple Ultra um, in titanium and an orange strap. How can he not as a Dutchman? Um, but some hardcore watch collectors deviated. They switched up to connected watches, either for health, sports, or simply that they're scared to walk around with a very high-end watch on the wrist because in major cities around Europe, unfortunately, we have a lot of theft and violence around watches. Um, so we see the numbers dwindling for the 
Taghoya connected sales and just our physical and online boutique. I don't know the international figures, but I think they're very successful because they are beautiful. I do think that the Teghoyer connected watch is the most beautiful connected watch out there. The fourth generation became slimmer. It looks like a Carrera, a beautiful glass curved, a real straps. It has a real Teghoyer strap and a real Teghoyer buckle. Then in the high end, we have from the same group, uh, Louis Vuitton connected watches, but it all runs on Android. I mean, from another group, Richemont makes Mont Blanc connected watches. LVMH had a stint with Hublot, right? And I think the UEFA judges, uh, referees, sorry, that's the right word. The referees during the World Cup have a Hublot connected watch on the wrist. But to make a long story short, um, I don't think it's here to stay, not in the luxury segment. It doesn't hurt luxury watch sales, the mechanical side of things, or even the quartz ones. It actually helps. So, Edward, I hope I answered your question. Rob, do you want to add something to it? Or I'm actually very curious how you see things. Yeah, good question. Um, I'm not sure what else there is to add. You have great personal experience with this field, and it's... uh, True, I think, how you ended your comment um, by referencing what we also heard echoed by Mr. Biver, that the presence of these smart tools in the watch space is actually beneficial to drawing the attention of younger audience members to the old crafts, which I am also sure will persist. I did once wonder if we were going to see a revolution of quartz-level of quartz-like proportions, but to be honest, no. There's there's no fear in my mind on, on that front. I think that certain brands like Tag Heuer and Louis Vuitton will continue to have their little connected corner, and that will probably persist for quite some time yet, but I don't think it's going to spread too much through the industry. I think people are mostly over it now, and the Apple Watch is so established as an inoffensive tool that can easily be worn on the other wrist or on the underside of one's left wrist if that is their watch wearing wrist uh thanks to specially made straps and buckles and whatnot i think we could see a little bit more of that perhaps because it is a useful tool and i've used them on occasion myself i've used them on occasion myself so i don't dislike the smart tech industry but it has fully moved away from um the even the forefront, even the edges of my mind, it's definitely not at the forefront of my mind anymore as it once was. So yeah, uh, let's move on to a question from our dear friend, Da Dutch Collection on IG. This is going back to one of the ones he sent in weeks ago now because he sent us such a huge list of questions. Uh, he says, as, as you might remember to our dear listeners who have uh, been with us from the early days, Dutch has a habit of making statements um, somewhat poetic, haunting statements, and we have to interpret exactly what the question is within them. What we have here today is how overexposure and content exhaustion will lead to tribal virtual assemblies and new pockets of interest. So I think this one is pretty straightforward as far as they come from Dutch. This is uh, obviously referencing people getting a bit bored of the same old, same old, and banding together to explore and enjoy together new things online. 
in virtual assemblies, I guess that's what it means. So I would say like a virtual red bar meetup, people maybe having WhatsApp groups or signal groups, Telegram, this kind of thing. Clubhouse is dead, I think now, but <laughs> maybe some people still use it. And new pockets of interest. So what we do know about the the way that people form these cliques online is that they tend to be breeding grounds for new ideas and quite niche ideas and although that can be a negative thing in some fora here i think it is positive because it will enable more people to find kindred spirits in a virtual space alan again you know a little bit more about the virtual side of things than i do or considerably more so perhaps you could uh, mention this um, or give this a moment of your time and see where your answer takes you. I would gladly give a moment of my time, buckets of it. And I want to state on the record that Dutch collection, I love you. I love your statements. And Rob, you said that this was straightforward, but if I reread the sentence, it's, it's a, it's almost a haiku. It's a little philosophical essay. What he've written, he has written. I am anti-algos, algorithms. I, I do not like mainstream everything. So, And that's what social media companies are basically doing to us. We're becoming uh, herds of sheep. Um, we discussed Red Bar Crew uh, on a previous episode. That is actually literally what that Dutch collection maybe refers to with his new pockets of interests. I find a lot of joy online by fighting against the algorithm and not following all their suggestions and then tumbling down a rabbit hole. And regarding watches, I enjoy the accounts that post mostly vintage watches because you see stuff I've never seen before. That's for me a new pocket of interest. Um, I guess maybe our podcast tries to be a new pocket of interest. We try to bring it as raw and authentic as possible. Um, but, but nothing beats real life, in my humble opinion. So the physical meetups from Red Bar Crew, it's not commercial. Uh, it's people coming together over one passion, but there is no red thread there, no pun intended on the red. I have to promote retailers. I mean, we are being squeezed into a corner by brands, not so much consumers, but how boring is it that every high street is the same? Everything is the same mono brand boutique. You can't even compare products from different brands in one boutique. Um, so go out, adventure, go visit your AD, go sit down and ask, hey, what would you recommend? Or do you have something special downstairs or behind in your office, hidden in a vault? Go out and explore. That's my advice. That is good advice. Something we can all live by. That's for sure. Get out there and explore. To uh, answer the question as I see it, I think um, we could sort of see smaller, almost old school forum-esque groups popping up on these communication channels that I mentioned before. When people get tired of reading the mainstream blogs and the mainstream media and listening to mainstream podcasts, even like this one, and they want to really just live in a 
small and comforting echo chamber with people that have the same kind of interest. And there's nothing wrong with that when it comes to a hobby like this. If you're really, really, really stuck on one thing that unites you with a few other people of a similar mindset, that's fine. And um, I think that we could see that exist for quite a while until those groups grow again and then explode out into the open and merge back with one another so it's all cyclical i would say like content producers now or they have a lot of forums to play with and i mean that they have a lot of different platforms to play with they could either be written they could be audio they can be visual and they can be in person even exclusively and that is hard to know what to do sometimes when you're on the content creation side of things because you don't want to you don't want to do what Dutch is suggesting. You don't want to exhaust people with your content. You don't want to oversaturate the market with watch media, but you do always find that there is space for valuable insights, for different perspectives, and for authenticity. And I think that this will lead to self-regulating, smaller self-regulating communities online in virtual spaces that are able to cut through a lot of the press bullshit that they've had to deal with for years and years and years and years of people just rolling over and, you know, writing or saying exactly what brands want them to write or say. And that will, yeah, lead, as Alan said, maybe to a new pocket of interest in more transparent brands, transparent media organizations, and people that are focused more on being a positive impact on the community that we love so much rather than just trying to rinse it for all it's worth make a quick buck and then get out before it collapses down on top of them so it's a positive thing i think um i think that nowadays we live in an ecosystem that is more held to account by its denizens and that will probably bear out to be a good thing for the kind of products that we actually get to see on our wrists in the next few years with that said let's wrap up the show that's been another interesting meandering hour of q and a thanks alan i enjoyed that one um let's get back on the microphone in a couple of days with another interview before that if you'd like to get in touch with us and be part of next week's q a or subsequent q a's please do so via instagram i'm there at rob nuds that's r-o-b-n-u-d-d-s you can find alon at alon ben joseph that's a-l-o-n-b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h alternatively you can email us at rob at the realtime.show or alon at the realtime.show until then stay safe and keep on ticking <laughs>